Well, before we pray and dive into the sermon, I just want to express gratitude to so many of you who serve so faithfully here on Sundays, really throughout the week, but I was just reminded again this morning to, to come in and see so many of you serving. Thank you, setup team and security and all those who are taking part in various, the AV team, our worship team, who get here very, very early, the people who are working and serving in nursery. We just need to be aware that we are gifted and we are surrounded by a lot of servants who love us deeply and care in many different ways and are um, sacrificing themselves in many ways. They don't, they don't get to participate in worship in the same ways. And so we just want to acknowledge that we see your service to us and we're grateful for it. We don't say it enough, but thank you for serving for us and for the Lord. Let's pray together and then we'll get into Exodus 20. Father, thank you so much for your word, which is the lamp to our feet and the light for our path. It is also the sword of the Spirit, which is designed to lovingly be placed in the scalpel, the, the hand of our good shepherd to serve as, a, 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 as our good physician's scalpel, which is meant to um, heal us, wound us sometimes, but certainly for the purpose of healing. So good physician, do your good work in us. We thank you that you did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so that is us this morning. So we pray that you would work in us by your word. Search us out. See if there is any wicked way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. We ask this in the name of our Savior and Shepherd, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as you know, we've been making our way through the book of Exodus. And we recently, last week, finished up our sermon series through the Ten Commandments. And I had said previously that we were going to pick up the pace quite a bit, and that is certainly true. We will be picking up the pace. But this week, I decided to just, just stop in verses 18 through 21 and just preach a sermon on these four verses, because in these four verses, there's so much to learn about how we are rightly to respond to the Ten Commandments. We've heard all kinds of ten sermons, in fact, on the Ten Commandments and all, the, all that they mean and all that they are supposed to call us to do and how they show us who we are and how they show us who God is and how they show us how we relate to each other and relate to Him. But let's pause, and having looked at all ten of those commandments, let's stop and ask, how do we respond? What is the appropriate response to God's Word? And this section in Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21, describes Israel's reaction to the Ten Commandments. And as we see their reaction, we can learn what our reaction is to be. So how did they respond? That's what we're going to see this morning. In one of our confessions of faith, the 1689 Baptist Confession, in chapter 19, verse paragraph, paragraph 6, which is on the law of God, which is what we've been considering as we walk through Exodus 20, we are taught here in our confession how we are supposed to respond to the law. And I just want to read that for you. I believe it will be on the screen behind me. True believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it. Yet it is very useful to them and to others as a rule of life that informs them of the will of God and their duty. It directs and obligates them to live according to its precepts. It also exposes the sinful corruption of their natures, hearts, and lives. As they examine themselves in light of the law, they come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred of sin, along with a clearer view of their need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. The law is also useful to the regenerate, that's to Christians, to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin. 
The punishment threatened by the law shows them what even their sins deserve and what troubles they may expect in this life due to their sin, even though they are freed from the curse and undiminished severity of it. The promises of the law likewise show them God's approval of obedience and the blessings that may expect, they may expect when they keep it, even though these blessings are not owed to them by the law as a covenant of works. If people do good and refrain from evil because the law encourages good and discourages evil, that does not indicate that they are under the law and not under grace. Phil Riken, president of Wheaton College and former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, writes that God's law is a multi-use item. It has three primary purposes. One is to restrain our sin by threatening us with punishment. Another use of the law is to reveal our sin by proving that we cannot live up, live up to God's perfect standard. Later, after we've been saved by grace, the law shows us how to live in a way that brings glory to God. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Those three purposes, the law being a multi-use item, we're going to look at those three purposes that are highlighted not only in our confession, but in the quote by Dr. Riken. And we're going to see this morning three things of how to rightly respond to the Ten Commandments, or three ways to rightly respond to the Ten Commandments. Here's the first one. The commandments show us our sinfulness. Now let's see this in Exodus 20. Look at verse 18 and notice the immediate response of the people of Israel upon hearing God's ten words to them on Mount Sinai. Verse 18 we read, Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. Look at the beginning of verse 21. The people stood far off. So now we understand that one of the reasons the people stood far off is because God told them to stand far off. Remember in Exodus 19 when he was getting ready to come down on the mountain, he said, hey, I want you to be protected here. You need to be aware when I come down on this mountain, it's going to be a fearful scene and you need to stand away lest you die. And so they're doing what God required them to do. But I also think they're recognizing something here. This is experiencing something of what the law has taught them and revealed to them. Having seen the thunder, the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, the people are afraid and they tremble. Now we're not told why they're afraid they tremble. We assume in large measure it's this amazing scene they're beholding. But it's also no doubt part of the reason they're trembling is because of what they heard. They heard God's law spoken to them, the way they are called to live and how they're to behave as his people, and no doubt they are sensing in themselves something of their own sinfulness as a result of hearing God's law in this way. In fact, this is what our confession said. Remember it said when I read at the beginning, it also exposes, that is the law, exposes the sinful corruptions of our nature's hearts and lives. And as we examine ourselves in light of the law, we come to further conviction of, humiliation for, and hatred of sin. Think about this. Whenever God shows up in the Bible, there is this sense of hiding and dread that overcomes people. You know, I think sometimes we think, we, we, we can sometimes speak like, oh, I just wish the Lord would speak to me audibly, and I wish I would have a divine visitation in my bedroom as I'm praying one time. You know if that happened, you would soil yourself. There would be lots of difficult emotions that you would have, and you would have trembling and fear. It wouldn't be 
the sweet, blessed whisper of the shepherd in your ear. It would be an all-consuming, amazing thing. Think of what happened just in the garden, right after Adam and Eve sinned. Just in the garden alone, a place of perfection where God dwelled. When they sinned, what was their immediate first response when God said, where are you? They hid. They hid. The prodigal son, remember when Luke 15, when he sins against the father, or actually asks for his inheritance early, which was a sin, because it was basically wishing the father was dead. And he takes the inheritance, and he goes in a far country, and he wastes his money, and he lives a sinful life. And then what is he tempted to do as he comes back to the father? Say, hey, I can't wait to get home. Dad's probably got a meal cooked for me. Probably slaying the fatted calf. No, he's trembling. He's fearful. He says, I hope he'll just have me as a slave. I hope that in light of my sin and the fact that I deserve his punishment, I hope he'll have some mercy on me and just give me the slave quarters. But in fact, that's not what happened. But the, but the, but the reality is, having sinned against his father, he knows that he has this sense of dread. Isaiah 6 teaches us the same thing. Remember when Isaiah sees the vision of the Lord high and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple? And then what does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. He wants to hide. There's a sense of dread that comes over him. We also see it with the apostle Peter in Luke 5. Remember when he sees Jesus and the miracle of catching all the fish and they come into the boat? He he falls down and he says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. There's this sense of dread that comes on him. We see John, the Apostle John in Revelation 1, when he gets the vision of the exalted Christ, he falls at his feet as though dead. And again, Paul in Romans chapter 7, as he comes into contact with the law, as we saw last week, there's this sense of, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So dread, hiding, wanting to stand far off, having your sins exposed, Feeling your need for for mercy from God is a very common experience. It is, in fact, the universal experience, to some degree, of everyone who comes into contact with God. If you have never felt your sinfulness in the presence of God, it is not God in whose presence you have been. Because everyone who comes into God's presence feels themselves unworthy of being in God's presence. It doesn't mean we all experience it the same way. None of these biblical figures did. They didn't experience it all the same way. But there's this universal sense of dread and a tendency to hide and withdraw because we see how great God is and how truly sinful we are. David Brainerd experienced this, the early missionary and friend of Jonathan Edwards in the 1800s. He wrote the following in his journal. He says, the strictness of the, on the strictness of the divine law, he says, for I found it, that was the law, it was impossible for me after my utmost pains to answer its demands. I often made new resolutions and as, as often broke them. I imputed the whole to carelessness. In other words, he said, the reason why I wasn't obeying the law is just because I was reckless and careless and didn't want to do it. Well, that doesn't sound like the truth, but notice what he keeps saying. And the want or lack of being more watchful. And I used to call myself a fool for my negligence. But when upon a stronger resolution and greater endeavors and close application to fasting and prayer, I found all attempts fail. Then I quarreled with the law of God as unreasonably rigid. I thought if it extended only to my outward actions and behaviors, I could bear with it. But I found it condemned me for my evil thoughts and sins of my heart, which I could not possibly prevent. You see the frustration. That's that's what the law intends. The law is meant to frustrate us because the harder we try to keep it, the worse we are at doing it. And the more we try to attribute our 
our motives to trying to pursue the law in some sort of false way, the more that will reveal our sin. The law was given to increase the trespass. It was, it was to make sin exceedingly sinful, as Paul says in the New Testament. John Murray, Tim Hoke's favorite theologian and a good one for all of us to be familiar with, says, law can do nothing to justify the person who in any particular has violated its sanctity and come under its curse. Law as law has no expiatory provision. Now that's a big word, but let me, let me explain what he's saying. He says the law has no ability to forgive. The law as the law is just the law. It doesn't have within itself a power to cleanse or forgive us. It exercises no forgiving grace, and it has no power of enablement to the fulfillment of its own demand. That's what David Brainerd experienced, and that's what we've experienced. Like, the harder I try to do it, I can't. I just, I feel like the, the harder I try, the worse things get. And that's the way the law is meant to function. It knows no clemency for the remission of guilt. It provides no righteousness to meet our iniquity or sin. It exerts no constraining power to reclaim our waywardness. It knows no mercy to melt our hearts in penitence and new obedience. It can do nothing to relieve the bondage of sin. It accentuates and confirms that bondage. That's true. That's exactly what the law does. It can do nothing to remedy sin. All it can do is accentuate our bondage to it. The law describes the good life. Right? This is the good life. Romans tw or Exodus 20, we've looked at, wow, if everybody did the Ten Commandments, how peaceful our world would be. It describes the good life. But when it comes in contact with the sinful Israelites, it sounds like death. It sounds like death. The law is good, but we are not. And that's the problem. A good law applied to bad people means death. Even God's people with God's law can't live the good life, which shows us something crucial about the law. It can only describe the good life. It can't produce the good life. All it can do is describe God's ideal. It can't produce God's ideal. This is what Romans 3.20 says. For by the works of the law, Paul says, no human beings will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So there is no keeping of the law in our own strength that will result in a right standing with God since the purpose of the law, one of the main purposes of the law, is to show us our sinfulness. Has it shown you your sinfulness? I hope it has. I don't think any of us can uh, wiggle around the ten words that we've considered the last several months and say, well, I'm innocent. I'm innocent of transgression. I have no need of a Savior. In fact, the law is meant to bind us up take us captive, close our mouths, and make us ready and willing to receive God's mercy, if we've understood it correctly. So that leads us to point number two. The commandments point us to our need of a mediator. The commandments point us to our need of, a, a, in other words, a savior, someone who can be a go-between between us and God. This is what the Israelites do. Did you notice what they did in verse 19? As soon as they were tempted to draw back, look at verse 19 of Exodus 20. They were trembling, they stood far off, and then what's the first thing they did? Verse 19, and said to Moses. <laughs> they looked to some other person who was their shepherd and mediator and leader and said something to him. What did they say? You speak to, to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. 
And so Moses ends up doing exactly that. Verse 21, the second half, we read, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So what do the people do? The people say to Moses, you speak to God. You go to God for us because we cannot handle God on our own. This is what our confession says. When I read it at the beginning, let me, let me review what I read there. It says, the true believers are not under the law as a covenant of works to be justified or condemned by it, but as they examine themselves in light of the law, they come to further conviction of and hatred of sin along with a clearer view of their need for Christ and the perfection of his obedience. So that's what the law does. It shows us our clearer need for Christ. You know, what's one of the first things that we do or that a person does when we get in trouble with the law? We hire a lawyer, right? And that's what the Israelites do. They're in trouble with God, they recognize it, and they hire a lawyer. They say to Moses, speak to God on our behalf. As soon as they heard the demands of God's law, they asked Moses to be their legal advocate with God. That is their mediator. A mediator is someone who stands in the gap to bring two groups together. And this is what the Israelites needed. They needed someone to stand in between heaven and earth for them, to bridge the gap between God's godness and their sinful humanity. They needed someone to represent them before God and represent God to them. And they begged Moses to be their go-between with God. And he was willing to do it. So a mediator does many things in their role. They enter God's presence on behalf of God's people. That's what we see Moses do in verse 21. He goes up into the thick darkness on the mountain to go into the presence of God. We also see a mediator drawing near to God as the representative of the people. He makes atonement for sin. After sacrifices were offered to God, I want you to see what Moses did. Hold your finger in Exodus 20, go to verse, uh, chapter 24. We'll get there in a few weeks, Lord willing. But Exodus 24, I want you to see what Moses does in his role as mediator here. Exodus 24, beginning at verse 5. And he sent young men of the people of Israel, this is Moses, who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Verse 6, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Skip down to verse 8. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. In other words, this is an Old Testament picture of God dealing with sinfulness through atonement. That is, someone is dying in the place of the people who deserve to die. And as a result of that, they are they are being forgiven. They are having a sacrifice take their place for their sin. That was one of the roles of a mediator, was to provide atonement. Not themselves necessarily, but to make sure that they kept God's law to provide atonement for the people. So we also see that a, mo a, a mediator intercedes for God's people. Look at Exodus 32. Exodus 32 in verse 9. We're going to get here in several weeks as well, and this is one of the most gripping scenes in the entire book of Exodus as Moses comes down from the mountain and sees the people breaking the commandments at the foot of the mountain. And at that moment, he recognizes 
they are in so much danger. They are going to be killed. And he steps in and intercedes for them. Look at verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. In other words, I'm going to start again. Get rid of Abraham's people. We're starting with Moses' people. I'm getting rid of these people. But notice what Moses does as the mediator. But Moses, verse 11, implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you've brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they will inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. That is an amazing appeal from a great defense attorney. He argues on the basis of God's character and upon the basis of God's promise that if he kills them, Egypt is going to laugh them to scorn, laugh him to scorn, and number two, he's going to violate his own character and make himself a liar. Boy, if they ever hooked anything, that is a, that is a powerful argument in God's character. And he says, listen, God, if you kill them, not only are the Egyptians going to make a mockery of you, but you will have been false to your own promise, which you said you could never do. And he says, you're right, Moses. Now, he knew that, of course. God knew that. But Moses' argument as their defense attorney moved God's heart to relent. It's amazing. So a mediator not only provides atonement, but provides intercession. Also... A mediator lays down his life for the people he serves. Again, Exodus 32, in verse 32, we read, Moses, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. In other words, okay, it's what Paul said in Romans 9, right? Or Romans 9 and 10, that if... if if you, will, if you will not save the Israelites, I would love to have the Jews, the kinsmen after my flesh, believe in Jesus. I'd rather be accursed than have them. This is, that's the same spirit that Moses has here as a mediator. He says, curse me. If you won't forgive them, curse me. So a mediator lays down his life for the people he serves. And brothers and sisters, here's the good news. We have a better mediator. We have a far, far better mediator. But... It is a mediator that is pictured here in Moses. Jesus is, in fact, mentioned in Hebrews 3.3 3 as the better mediator than Moses. How is he better than Moses? Well, let me review for you. Romans 8.3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That's the greatest news in all the world. We have a mediator who has made perfect atonement for our sin. We have a mediator who perfectly represents us before God and intercedes for us and who was willing to lay his life down and die and suffer under the wrath of God for our sins. And that was the only way that God could justly forgive us. Phil Riken again says, Jesus does everything a mediator is supposed to do. He goes to God for us. He's our go-between. 
the one who approaches the thick darkness where God is. He's able to do this much more effectively than Moses ever did because he is God as well as man. Jesus has both a divine nature and a human nature. Therefore, he's uniquely capable to represent us before God. As he approaches God on our behalf, Jesus does something that Moses could never do. He offers perfect obedience to the law. Whatever mediation Moses offered was limited by the fact that he himself was a lawbreaker. He was not able to offer perfect obedience to the Ten Commandments, but Jesus could do it. Jesus worshiped God alone, honored God's name, kept the Sabbath holy, obeyed his parents, loved his enemies, told the truth, and did everything else God commanded him to do. This is the kind of mediator we need, someone to keep God's law for us. And praise the Lord, we have just such that mediator. Kids, do you recognize that this mediator needs to be yours as well? Have you always kept God's law perfectly? Surely not. Well, this mediator is yours too. You need this mediator as well. Would you come to this mediator this morning? Would you come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I have not obeyed you. I've not obeyed the Father. I've not done everything that you've required of me. And I recognize that if I have to come into your presence without a Savior, I'm in big trouble. But if I will hold on to Jesus, he will hold on to me. And so grab hold of Jesus this morning, kids, and Jesus will grab hold of you. The law of God is a subject of quite a bit of hymnody, but one particular hymn is called just that, The Law of God is Good and Wise. And I want to share that hymn with you this morning, which emphasizes the role of the law in helping us see our need for Jesus. Listen to what it says. The law of God is good and wise and sets his will before our eyes, shows us the way of righteousness and dooms to death when we transgress. Its light of holiness imparts the knowledge of our sinful hearts, that we may see our lost estate and turn from sin before too late. To those who help in Christ have found and would in works of love inbound, it shows what deeds are his delight and should be done as good and right. We're going to get to that next, next point. Ver, uh, verse 4 of the hymn. But those who scornfully disdain, that is, Christ's offer of salvation, God's law then, shout, then in sin remain, its terrors in their ear resounds and keeps their wickedness in bounds. The law is good, but since the fall, its holiness condemns us all. It dooms us for our sin to die and has no power to justify. To Jesus we for refuge flee, who from the curse has set us free and humbly worship at his throne, saved by his grace through faith alone. That's what the law does. It points us to Jesus and say, I've got to be saved on the basis of what another person has done freely by grace, and he does just that for us. So the law shows us our sinfulness. The law points us to our need for a mediator. And finally, the law or the commandments motivate us to live in a way that pleases God. Look at verse 20 of Exodus 20. Here we read, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. What a baffling verse. It sounds so contradictory, doesn't it? He says to the people, don't be afraid, be afraid. Don't fear, fear. So what in the world is this talking about? Again, our confession of faith says, the law is useful to the regenerate, to Christians, to restrain their corruptions because it forbids sin. Now, now, now listen to this. The punishment threatened by the law shows them that what even their sins deserve and what troubles they may expect in this life due to their sin, 
But the promises of the law likewise show them God's approval of obedience and the blessings that they may expect when they keep it, even though these blessings are not owed to them by the law as a covenant of works. In other words, the law is showing punishment, but the law is also showing promises. Promises. And that is what's in view here in Exodus 20. He says, do not fear that God has revealed this to you in order to punish you. But God has revealed this to you in order that you may live pleasing to him. That's what Moses is saying in Exodus 20. He says, don't fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So that's the purpose. So there's this dual motivation for obedience. There is a fear we ought not to have, clearly, do not fear. And there's a fear that we are to have. So let's talk about that. There's a fear we ought not to have when approaching God. And there's a fear we ought never to lack when approaching God. He doesn't want you to stand far off. He doesn't want you to avoid him. See, so often when we come into contact with the law and it makes us feel bad about ourselves, the first thing we do is run. And that's not what God wants you to do. He wants that revelation to cause you to run to him. Isn't that what you want, parents, with your kids? Don't you want, when they've done something wrong, to come to you? You don't want them to blitz and take off. You want them to turn and come back to you and say, I'm so sorry that I've done... And confess it. And what does that do for your parental heart? It draws it out towards your kids. Same with God. God doesn't want his kids to run. That's clear in the garden. Where are you? Adam, where are you? Now, of course, he knew where they were, but it's an expression of his heart. I'm coming looking for you. You're running from me. That's never been the way God wants it. He doesn't want you to stand far off, but neither does he want you to treat him as casual and as someone to be played around with or indifferent toward. There is a difference between being frightened of God and fearing God. A big difference. If you fear God, there is no reason ever to be frightened of him. But if you do not fear God, there is every reason to be frightened of him. So what we see here in the Ten Commandments is this dual motivation. There's a positive and a negative that's built in. There's punishment threatened, but there's also promises given. Now I want you to see this has been the case throughout the Ten Commandments. It's, remember, how did the Ten Commandments begin? The Ten Commandments began with promise, didn't they? Look back at verses 1 and 2 of Exodus 20. God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God. In other words, I'm God, I'm your God before you do anything for me. You haven't obeyed me perfectly, you haven't done anything. That didn't stop me from being your God. I saved you on the basis of grace when I brought you out of Egypt. You were doing nothing but sitting there and complaining. And I reached down with my strong hand and delivered you out. You didn't do a thing. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Then the commandments come. Then the commandments come. So the positive motivation was always there. I'm the Lord your God. I brought you on eagle's wings to myself, he says in Exodus 19. I'm your God. But there's also this warning that's attached to it, which is, Don't be casual with my commandments. We see it within the commandments themselves. Remember the fifth commandment? Look there. 
honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. There's a positive promise. Listen, you want to live a long time in the land you're going to? Obey your father and mother. That's a positive motivation. That's not negative. We want to live a long time, so obey your parents. But also, there's a negative commandment or motivation within the commandments. Look at the third commandment where God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything. In the, but this is the second commandment. But then in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers. In other words, you'll be punished for this. And then look at verse 7. You, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So there's a negative side, but there's a positive side. So this is interesting. And this, this reveals to us the tension that we are to have in our walk with God. We are to never be frightened of him if we are in Christ. We are never to think that he wants us to stand far off. We are to draw near to him, even in our sin. He wants us to draw near. Why? We have an advocate. We have a mediator. We have a savior. Of course we should draw near. We have every reason to draw near. Jesus intercedes for us. But at the same time, he never wants us to grow casual with sin. He never wants us to think sin is no big deal that we're saved by grace. We can live however we want. No, that's not the way God thinks. In fact, those who are saved by grace desire to live how God wants. That's how they know they're saved by grace. Here's what Wayne Grudem says about that very tension. He says, imagine for a moment you're facing some kind of specific temptation. You're tempted to deal dishonestly with some money at work or in a situation with a relative or on your tax returns. Tis the season. You are walking in late for a meeting and you're tempted to tell a small lie. The traffic was unexpectedly heavy to make an excuse for yourself. You're away on a business trip and other people have left the room and you're tempted to linger too long in a conversation with a person of the opposite sex who's not your spouse. You're tempted to visit an internet site that has pornography. Your boss wants you to sign a form that you know is untruthful. You hear some interesting gossip and you don't know if it's true, but you're tempted to pass it on to someone else. Someone at work has been promoted over you and you're tempted to lie about that person just to get even. You're tempted to have another drink, if you drink at all, even though you know you've had enough. You know that God has been prompting you to phone or visit another person or perhaps been calling you into some ministry, but you're tempted not to obey. You're tempted to be dishonest about some details regarding an item you're returning to the store. Grudem says innumerable situations like these come up in ordinary life. The question is, does it really make any difference what we do? You might even be tempted to rationalize by saying, hasn't God already forgiven me? This probably won't make any difference to any, him at all. The answer is yes, it does make a difference. And that difference is what we will discuss. First, we will talk about the joys and blessings that come with obedience to God in daily life. And we'll also see the harmful consequences that come from it, even sin in the life of a Christian. So, He's wrestling with, yes, we are saved by grace. Yes, we are saved according to God's mercy. Yes, we're saved apart from anything we do. But nevertheless, that salvation begins to transform us and make us different. So what I want to do then is close this sermon and I, and I, with 15 encouragements to obedience. And I'm going to tick through them really quick, okay? So you don't have to worry. We're not going to go very long. Um, because what I want to do is, not is because I think the accent of verse 20 is on promise. It's on incentivizing obedience. It's on, hey, don't stand far off from God. Don't be frightened of him, but rather come near to him. Recognize that in his law, there is good blessing that comes from obedience. 
So I want to give you the blessings that come from our obedience to God. And just let these wash over you and encourage you this week as you strive to walk with God more faithfully. And recognize that as you do so, you bring great joy to your Father in heaven. So let me, let me tick through these very quickly. Number one, you have the promise that when you obey God, you will enjoy deeper fellowship with him. Okay, John 14, 23 says that when we keep his commandments, Jesus will manifest himself to us. Do you want the manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? Then you've got to obey the word of God. There is a unique manifestation that will come to God's obedient children that will not be enjoyed by those who disobey him. And when we sin, our fellowship with God is disrupted. And so we don't want to disrupt that fellowship with God. We want his smile to be on us. We want to have deeper fellowship with him. So that should drive us to obey. Number two, bring in glory to God. Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Don't you want other people to glorify God on the basis of your life? Well, it's going to have to come when we obey him. And that should be a motivation. I want God to receive glory from my life. Number three, pleasing God. Did you know as a Christian you can please God? I think sometimes we talk about salvation by grace so much, we think that there's only two camps. Yeah, God treats us as innocent because of Christ, and, and all those outside of Christ are damned, but really in the midst of it, we're just big sinful messes, and we can't do anything that makes God happy. No, we please him. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul said, I make it my aim to please him. Why would he make it his aim if it was an impossibility? It can be. Ephesians 5.10 says we strive to do whatever pleases the Lord. Philippians 4.18 says giving sacrificially pleases the Lord. Colossians 3.20 says children obeying their parents pleases the Lord. Children and grandchildren caring for a widowed family member pleases the Lord, according to 1 Timothy 5.4. Not neglecting to do good and sharing what you have pleases God, according to Hebrews 13.16. And keeping his commandments pleases him, 1 John 3.22. So knowing that God is pleased... Knowing that God is smiling, knowing that God is enjoying us in those moments helps motivate our obedience. Number four, make angels happy. You can make angels happy. You can bring joy to angels. You know, it's not just the repentant, right? Luke 15, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Angels are thrilled about that. And I imagine that angels are thrilled when they get news of the obedience of God's people. Ephesians 3.10 and Hebrews 12.22 seem to point in that direction that we can, through our obedience to God, bring joy to heaven itself, not just to God, but to heaven as well. Also, according to 2 Timothy 2.20 and 21, number 5, we become a vessel of honorable use to God. That is, a vessel whom God... We could be one of God's favorite coffee mugs, right? You know you got that favorite coffee mug, right? That you go to that, there's 15 coffee mugs in there, but there's one you really like. Okay, and it's not that God's playing favorites with his kids. All right, but what he is doing is recognizing that's a vessel I love to use right there. That's a vessel I'm going to reach for and use. Don't you want to be that for God? Don't you want to be like on his starting lineup a little bit? Like the one he goes for and says, I want to use that brother. I want to use that sister. And he uses those who are of honorable use to him. And so that's one of the reasons to motivate obedience too. Say, God, I want you to use me. I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to be wishing I could have done or wishing getting to heaven and feeling like, oh, 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 I could have done so, so much more if I just would have been obedient. Number six, being an effective witness to unbelievers. 
Don't you want to see your family members reach for Christ and your kids and your neighbors and your co-workers? Well, 1 Peter 2.12 says that we stri- as we strive to live honorably before outsiders, not giving them a reason to blaspheme, that we can be an effective witness in their lives. And that comes through our obedience to God. Number seven, having God's eyes and ears more attentive to us. James 5.16, the prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Now, why would he have to put that as an adjective if all God's people were righteous? In a sense, yes, we are all righteous in Christ. That's true. But that's not what James is talking about. James is talking about those who practice righteousness have God's ear. Right? We see this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, and Psalm 37, 23, that God's ear is particularly attentive to his children who are striving to be obedient to him. Number eight, closer fellowship with other Christians. You want deeper relationships with the body of Christ? Obey Christ. 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I want to have the deepest fellowship I can with my brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's going to come through obedience. Also, a clear conscience. 1 Timothy 1, 5. Paul says that he always strives to have a clear conscience in the book of Acts. Number 10, God's peace. Philippians 4.9 says, he says, you know, think on these things and the God of peace will be with you. Remember Philippians 4.8, that whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or worthy of praise, think on these things and the God of peace will be with you. See, when we occupy our minds with the things of God, we are occupying our hearts with the peace of God. And so that's a motivation as well. Number 11, discovering by experience that God's commands really are beneficial for our lives. You know, there's only so much you can learn with head knowledge. But when you step out and you obey God, then you begin to say, ooh, it really is good to obey God. It really is good. Romans 12.2 teaches that, that by, that by testing we may discern what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. And that's by offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. So as we die to ourselves, as we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, God is, is going to reveal to us that his commandments indeed are wonderful and beneficial. Number 12, experiencing freedom from slavery to sin. Romans 6, 11 through 14. When we sin, we begin to slide backward in our sanctification, and Paul doesn't want us to do that. He says, listen, count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Number 13, avoiding God's discipline. See, when we sin, we tempt God's fatherly heart to discipline us. That's what he says in Revelation 3.19 and Hebrews 12.11. And of course, the example, since we're doing the Lord's Supper tonight, the example of the Corinthians around the Lord's table. Some of them died as a result of their unwillingness to take the Lord's Supper properly. Number 14, greater assurance of salvation. This is one of the greater great motivations of obedience, that oftentimes on the backside of obedience comes the greater assurance of salvation. Can't tell you how many times as a pastor when you're interacting with folks and you're, who are struggling with assurance and yet there's this, there seems to be this, this non-warfare with sin in their life and yet they're wanting to be assured of their salvation but they're not wanting to get rid of the sin in their life that makes assurance necessary. And so in order to have assurance, strong assurance, we need to we, we need to strive to walk in holiness and righteousness. 
True believers, our confession says, may in various ways have the assurance of their salvation shaken, decreased, and temporarily lost. This may happen because they neglect to preserve it or fall into some specific sin that wounds their conscience and grieves the spirit. It may happen through some unexpected and forceful temptation or when God withdraws the light of his face and allows even those who fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light. Yet they are never completely lacking the seed of God, the life of faith, love of Christ, and the brethren, sincerity of heart or of conscience concerning their duty. Out of these graces, through the work of the Spirit, this assurance may at the proper time be revived. In the meantime, they are kept from utter despair through them. So in other words, God's people never are bereft of all assurance, but they can have their assurance strengthened through obedience. Finally, number 15, increased heavenly reward. I don't have time to turn us to all these passages, but 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, Luke 19, 17, and 19, Romans 14, 10 through 12, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15, Colossians 3, 24, Revelation 11, 18, all tie heavenly reward to obedience in this life. And the increase of heavenly reward should motivate us to obedience now. And when we sin, we forfeit those. And so we should strive by God's grace to have as much reward in heaven as we possibly can. Not for our, not for our joy, but so that our, or I should say, not for our glory, but for the deepening, as Jonathan Edwards said, we want a deeper cup when we get into, that, into, that, into heaven. You, this is a, uh, I'll close with this illustration. Jonathan Edwards has a, the most helpful illustration I've, I've heard about how is it in heaven when you have various degrees of reward that there's no jealousy or envy because we don't experience that in this life. But he says there, heavenly reward is, 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 is given, and it's that, that, that every Christian has a full cup, but some cups are deeper than others. And so we should strive, and we're all going to have a full cup. We're all going to be overflowing with joy, but we, would, should ha- we should want to have a 30-gallon drum and not a 12-ounce glass. Amen? So let's, motiv- let's be motivated to strive to walk with God this week in light of these promises. Let's pray together and worship team. You can come on up and lead us. Father, thank you for giving us your word and for giving us so many incentives to obey you. We pray that these reminders this morning that have washed over us these last several minutes would incentivize us this week to fight sin and to pursue godliness. We thank you that the gospel frees us from feeling like we have to live up perfectly in order for you to accept us. The law was not given for that reason. The law was given to show us our sin and drive us to Jesus. And we thank you that we have been led to Christ through the, through the, through the law, led right to the foot of the cross, and that because of what Jesus has done for us and is living and is dying and is rising again, we, by faith in him, can be fully forgiven, reconciled to you, adopted into your family, And then by grace, strive to imperfectly, but really and truly walk with you. And so this morning, as we've meditated on what that means and what that looks like, encourage us through these promises, encourage us to not fear or be frightened by you in any way, but rather to fear you and to walk with you and to rightly respond to your word by faith and obedience through grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.